Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to Off the Beaten Track Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Stu Whiffin. It's another week, therefore it's another episode. And boy, have I got an episode for you today. Um, my guest today is Andy Bell. That's Andy Bell of Ride, of Oasis, of Hurricane Number no. 1, of BDI, and, and Ride again. Um, so we talk about all of that, um, all of those bands on this episode. Obviously, we talk about Creation Records. Um, oh, it's a, an absolutely wonderful chat. And, um, and before we get on with it, I want to say a huge thank you um, to Kate Thornton, previous guest um, on Off the Beaten Track. Um, and it was Kate that suggested that I um, I speak to Andy as uh, as their friends, and she introduced us. Um, and yeah, I had to keep a a real lid on the um, the fanboy stuff on this because Andy's music's been um, something very dear to me uh, for a long, long time. Um, so yeah, thank you ever so much, Kay, and and, and thanks Andy for, for for giving up the time and, and, and coming into London to do this this podcast. Um, if you do enjoy this and it's your first episode of listening to uh, Off the Beaten Track, go and have a look in the um, the back catalogue because there's some some great episodes there um, with. Lots of musicians, some musicians from Creation Records um, speak to uh, Simone from Primal Scream, speak to the main man himself, Alan McGee, um, and also mentioned the, the Kate Thornton episode. Go and give that a listen. It's a, it's a cracking chat. Um, but, yeah, there's, there's, there's over 100 episodes in that back catalogue to, um, to go and have a, a shifty through. Um, thanks to uh, Mr76 for producing this podcast. Thanks to Scribbis Pip and everybody at the Distraction Pieces Network. And uh, let's get back to the, the job at hand. Please enjoy Off the Beaten Track podcast with Andy Bell. I've got an announcement. Save Our Souls Clothing. www.sosclothing.co.uk Why am I telling you this? Because they're our official sponsor. Yeah, that's right. Go and check them out because their clothing is off the scale. You're going to love it. So they've decided they want to be our sponsor, which is amazing. And what I have to do is I have to tell you about why they're amazing. So here's a little bit of blurb. So they've only been going a year. And they're based in South End on Sea, just up the road from me. They put the company together based on a, a love of tattoos and alternative music. And they've worked with some of the greatest artists around the world to produce these items of clothing that are as unique as you lot. All of the designs are printed using biodegradable, sustainable and water-based inks. And in addition to that, they only print on garments made by members of Fairwear Foundation. I mean, come on, great clothing and a conscience. 
Since going live in April last year, they've seen their audience grow massively and are now selling orders all across the world. And they were recognised by Cosmopolitan magazine as one of the best sustainable clothing brands alongside names such as Stella McCartney. I mean, that's quite a first year, right? So, go and check them out because they've put a lot of love into supporting this podcast and I couldn't be happier. What else they've done is they've given you 15% off. So if you head over to www.sosclothing.co.uk, do a bit of shopping, see what you like, throw it in the basket, and then on the way out, put in the discount code BEAT15. B-E-A-T-1-5. And that'll save you 15% off. Amazing, right? www.sosclothing.co.uk Official sponsors of Off The Beat & Track Podcast. Let's get back to that podcast. It's Off The Beat & Track Podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. With me, Stu Whipping. Okay, we are in East London and it's a pretty dreary day out there, but um, a, ray, a ray of sunshine has walked in the, uh, <laughs> the, the, the studio today. Um, it's Andy Bell. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm really well, thank you. We've, um, we've never met before. That, that's a lie. I have met you once before many, 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 many years ago. Not that you would ever remember it, but um, it was at the Wire Club in Chelmsford. Oh, wow. Hurricane number one. Yeah. Very early days. Yeah. And uh, and we turned up because we were all massive ride fans to come and yeah to come and say hi to you. And also in attendance that night, who was excited to come and say hi to you was Tim from Ash as well. Ah, that come to Chelmsford. Tim Wheeler. Yeah. 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 Uh, was so I have met you. <laughs> that is interesting. I, I can't say I remember your face, but it's a long time ago. <laughs> Many brain cells yeah. have come and gone since. I'm then. sure. Yeah, I wouldn't have expected you to remember um, <laughs> a drunk, a drunk twenty-year-old me saying hello. Um, but this has kind of been put together um, by our mutual friend, the lovely Kate Thornton. Yes. Um, who, when she came and done this, she was like, "You need to speak to, you need to speak to my mate Andy Bell." And I was like, "Well, as a as a lifelong ride fan, that'd be that'd be wonderful." And and it's. Uh, well, you've been touring as well, but we've managed to kind yes. of yeah, get we, it we, to happen. We were in contact a few months ago, but then I went on tour, so yeah. I'm back now. Wonderful. I really appreciate your time today, mate. Andy Bell, the song with the greatest ever intro. Well, what I've gone for, controversially, is a song which is pretty much all intro. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's the, the dub symphony in two parts version of Higher Than The Sun by mm-hmm. Palmer Scream. And I think... Um, in the current circumstances, I wanted to just shoehorn Andrew Weatherall into this mm-hmm. as soon as possible. Yeah, um, absolutely. In, in the light of his passing, um, which is a very sad thing. Um, did, you, did you know Andrew? Yeah, yeah. Andrew was a friend of mine, um, or I was a friend of his. Mm-hmm. Um, we'd, we'd started to get to know each other quite recently, although I've been a, I've been a fan of his forever. Yeah. Um, right, going b- right back to this period when he started to... When, when I got signed or when Ride were being signed to Croatian... Um, some of the first conversations I had with Alan McGee, who was the, the you know, the boss mm-hmm. of the label, was all about Primal Scream, and they were making Scream of the Liquor, and mm-hmm. it was just this sort of punk rock meets acid house thing, where it was like, 
they, they tell me I've got to make a click track. I've just had Andrew on the phone. He, he needs a click. How do I make a click? Yeah. And, you know, everyone was finding out for themselves how to do all this. And they were, like, making legendary tunes, like Loaded and, mm. and this one, Higher Than The Sun. Had he done the Valentine stuff then? Um, that's a good question. I think this might have been the first thing. Right. And then the Valentine's mix, you know, mm. the, the seminal mix of soon, yeah. you know, oh, or, wow. is it, uh, I think it's called soon. Yeah, it was. Um, came very soon after. So is he someone that was floating about in the creation sort of offices and stuff like that? He was in Primal Screams orbit, definitely. Mm. But um, I mean, I didn't meet him in those in that period. Yeah. Um, I just heard him doing his thing. Um, I think he was DJing during the Screaming Delicate tour, which I went to in London, and um, yeah, various. Uh, actually, uh, and then the funny thing was that a lot of people that were signed to Creation used to go to the Heavenly Social. Um, yeah. So Alan McGee ran Creation with Dick Green. Um, Jeff Barrett ran the social uh, ran Heavenly. Um, did I get that right? Alan McGee Creation, Jeff Barrett Heavenly. Yeah, that's, that's right. Um, yeah. And um, a lot of the Creation bands would would sort of like go down to this club night, and it was where the the Chemical Brothers used to start. Mm-hmm. They got their start there, um, DJing as the Dust Brothers before they changed the name. And um, Andrew Weatherall was another one who used to be in there quite a lot DJing. So I've, I would have heard him there now, um, a couple of times. Yeah. Yeah. In the very sweaty basement of the Albany pub in London. So, in regards to, to intros, and how, when, when you started in. In Ride, and you were yeah. writing songs in Ride, how much emphasis was put on an intro in regards to... This is quite a, a loaded question here. Yeah, yeah. In, in regards to the fact that, I guess, the way that people listened to music then was far different to how they do now. It wasn't... You had to hook them straight away because you've got a million records on Spotify constantly yeah. being thrown your way. And has that affected how you have recently wrote the how you've the recent Ride album. How, how is Yeah, it possibly changed? has affected it, just the fact that so much time has gone by and, you know, years of, of basically, I don't know, just of, of, of thinking about it a lot more. Mm. I'd say back in the early Ride days, we didn't think about it. Mm. We just did what came naturally. And so by, by nature of that, a lot of the Ride stuff has quite long intros that, that, that go through various gear changes before the vocals come in if they come in at all you yeah. know a lot of times just have R's and stuff yeah. like that um, I mean that's one of the things I like about the old ride stuff is that it's quite individual um, completely and uh, we, we kind of just played I think we played to our strengths quite well in the early days we, we weren't the best singers so we'd sort of it's almost like we saw ourselves as backing vocalists in our own band there was just like layers of harmonies and then we'd sort of put vocals in almost as an afterthought sometimes. Mm. Um, but it was really all about the power of the drums and bass and then the, the wall of guitars. And you were ridiculously young as well, wasn't you? We were young, yeah. Um, so the band started in, in the end of 88 and at that point I just turned 18. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's not so rare for a band to form when you're 18, mm. but we were signed up almost immediately after about six or seven gigs. Yeah. We were spotted and, and um, we were um, on a support tour with the Soup Dragons um, when Alan McGee came to see us. I would made a demo tape and it had been given some profile by NME. And Is that how you got on the, the tour then? Um, because did you have a manager before Alan signed you and things like that? 
We we had a manager in place already, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, to be honest, the details are fuzzy. Sure. <laughs> it's all lost in the mist of time a little bit. Um, so apologies if you do know the answers and I'm <laughs> <laughs> got it all threaded together wrong. But yeah, um, there was a sort of convoluted process to getting signed. We were spotted first by a, by a major label A&R person. Um, Mike Smith was involved. Um, ben Wardle was involved. Callie Callaman was involved. And uh, I'm not sure to what extent and how soon and who was first, but we ended up getting a bit of a cash injection from Callie, who worked at WEA, I think. Um, he's a really cool guy who used to work alongside... I think he worked quite closely with Julian Cope. Right. Um, and I'm not totally sure what else was going on with him, but, but we met him. He was lovely, and he just said, your band's great. Um, I want to give you some money to finish your first EP, your, f- your first single. So he bankrolled that. Um, and then there was a sort of plan in place that we would sign to... You know, back in those days, major labels often had fake indie imprints. Right, okay. So you would be signed to Warners, really, but you'd be on, you know, Squirrel Records. Yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? So um, it was like they'd recognised there was a credibility thing they needed to have. Like so the needed, Pandas and the yeah. things like that, yeah. Um, so that was their attempt at doing that. A lot of bands... Um, ended up leaving indies to go on these sort of like major labels type indies mm. but usually people could smell a rat somehow yeah much too much money was being spent on things yeah. so if things are being done in a real authentic way no one's got any money yeah so um, I guess people would... can sniff out a real indie sure um, for that reason so anyway we were set up to do this EP on this imprint and then in, in the intervening few months, Alan McGee came along and poached it. Yeah. And there, there, there we were on a, on a real, probably the best indie label around at the time. I think that's a safe, safe thing to say. Um, well, I'll pick back up on that um, and, and the journey of it as, as this podcast unfolds. Yeah. But um, for track two, Andy, the first song you remember hearing that had an emotional effect on you. Um, yeah, I had to just think back to this and and try and feel my way into the answer. But um, there were a few tracks when I was little I remember hearing for the first time. One of them um, was 19th Nervous Breakdown by The Stones. I remember hearing that, and there was a, a break in it where the, the bass just takes over, and it was just... Um, I felt it emotionally, like, whoa, that's pretty powerful. But really, um, the one that really like opened things up was Tomorrow Never Knows by The Beatles. Um, I was already kind of into the Beatles because my dad played me them. There's a lot of music on at home. Yeah. So in the house, there was four pop albums, which was the three Beatles albums that would been released while my dad was at college. Mm-hmm. Um, like early stuff, like with yep. the Beatles, Hard Day's Night, um, Beatles for Sale, I think was the three. They were in the house. And then um, Simon and Garfunkel, Bridge Over Troubled Water, which yep. was also a great album. And, and when you think about those records, they do... I can feel the influence of those four albums yeah. on me as a musician um, massively. Yeah. It was just because I used to play them all the time. Um, that was my musical world. And going back to those days, which would be the 70s growing up as a small child, um, there wasn't the access we have now. There wasn't an iPad or a, f- a computer to go on and just like click on a track. It was basically what you had physically in your hand was what you could listen to. Yeah. Um, so I would play the rec- records a lot. And became a Beatles fan through that, through my dad. And he used to take me to record fairs. 
where I'd have my three or four pounds saved up and yeah. buy the next Beatles album in the collection. So I do remember um, at one stage, probably about 10 years old, getting Revolver and bringing it home and playing it and, and getting to this track tomorrow never knows and just being hit by it, how different it was. Yeah. <clears throat> Sonically different. Um, it felt di- like it was um, transgressive. Still does. Yeah. Um, it's a record that gives me goosebumps every time I hear it. Yeah. What's the emotion that, 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 that evoked? Excitement. Brilliant. Excitement and ooh, I wanna I want to make that noise. My, you know, I wanna it, already it was like I wanted to be a musician, I think. Was you deconstructing music at that age? Was you like wondering how that was put together? Because that's a complex sonic wall, isn't it, that record? Yeah, it is. No, I don't think I was sort of thinking about the nuts and bolts of it so much as just being hit by the rush of it and yeah. feeling like I, I, I want to be in that noise. Yeah. Yeah. Was you already sort of picking up a guitar or...? Yeah, yeah. I got um, had a ukulele at age four and right. trashed that. Had a guitar at age nine and trashed that. That got left on a ward and fell over. And lessons didn't really take with me. Um, so we got the guitar fixed and I, it was just in the house. I tried to do the music thing where you just sort of someone you're sat there with the teacher and they're like here's the notes and it's like dum 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 you know like three blind mice yeah. or something and I'd play it back to him and he'd be like you're not looking at the notes I said well I'm just you know I played it didn't I sort yeah. of thing and he'd be like well that's not how it works you've got yeah. to read it off there and I just did, did not have the patience for that and I did find it easier just to copy what I was hearing yeah. and feel my way through it so I still don't read music um Although I am um, having to learn now because my daughter is starting piano piano lessons. Oh, so you've now got to learn. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'm learning at a seven-year-old level. Brilliant. Um, so where was this? Is this Oxford? Yeah, Oxford, yeah. yeah. I was born in Cardiff, Wales, but um, at the age of one or 18 months, the family moved to Oxford for, a, for, for work, my dad's yeah. work. Um, so he got a job at the Bodleian Library in Oxford, and that was why I moved there. Okay, but my my early memories are all Oxford. Okay, well let's 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 dig into one of those, which is for uh, track three, Andy, the song that reminds you of your time at school. The Smiths, always the Smiths. Yeah. I mean, um, I was about twelve or thirteen when I first heard them. Uh, I think it was on Janice Long's radio show, and one of the sessions, which was part of Hatful of Hollow, I guess. Yeah. Um, and just loved it when I first heard it. Went into town to buy it and didn't have it, so I bought a Cure a Cure cassette instead. Yeah. So it was sort of like a parallel thing. Cure and the Smiths was what I was into, but really, as a, a sort of a little mini guitar player, the Smiths was the one that really hooked me. Really. Um, I started to try and learn Smiths guitar lines and and without that much success because they're really quite hard. Yeah. Um, but how soon is now is the track I've chosen because yeah. um, it it's like quite a cool little guitar chord it's a, I think it's just an E chord yeah um, it's just yeah. chugs along like a Bo Diddley sort of thing um, you can play along with it but it's also very otherworldly all the other sounds in it I was just going to say going back to the Beatles as well it sounds Tomorrow Never Knows doesn't sound like any other Beatles song yeah as soon as now don't sound like any other Smith song it doesn't does it it's no. so unique yeah yeah and the uniqueness of the production and the way that Johnny uses guitars yeah I just love that um, and I've heard, and the, and the story doesn't let you down either. When you hear the story of how he did it, I think he lined up a load of amps together, 
and had them all on a tremolo setting, right? Which is like the j j j j j sound. Um, but because he had multiple amps doing it, it had its own rhythm because they were out of time with each other. That's what gave it that Or sound. something. I don't know. I, I mean, I'd have to refer to Johnny to tell the story properly. Yeah. But um, he's a guitarist that was massively influential on me early early days. And so, did you? Have you got to play with him? I haven't got to play with him, but I've got to to got to know him a little bit. Yeah. And um, hung out with him a few times, and he's a lovely, lovely man. Yeah. 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 He's. Uh, you you won't be the first, and I'm sure you won't be the last person that 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 talks about the influence that Johnny Mars guitars have had on this podcast. Yeah. He's uh, he's, a, he's an absolute giant in in the guitar world. Um, like him and George Harrison are quite similar. Style-wise, it's partial chords and picking, and quite sim. It's kind of simple when you know what he's doing. When you figure out where on the guitar neck he is, mm. you can. No- it, it's it's not like a, a showing off kind of playing. It's just something that's obviously taken a lot of care to get there. Yeah. Um, and once you are there, it all flows. Yeah. They're very flowing guitar players, him and George. And so. And, and to, just to, to touch on Robert Smith a little bit as well, yeah, was, yeah. Was, was that something that was, was still really sort of vital as you was sort of getting into the sort of formative years of learning uh, sort of put records together and things like that? Absolutely. And I think you can hear that influence. You know, we're talking about Ride having long intros. Yeah. The Cure are the kings yeah. of long intros. Yeah. When you see them live and um, just the confidence of, of playing a real simple chord structure. Yeah. Um, for a good two or three minutes before yeah. the voice comes in, but they're so emotional to hear. Like yeah. we've, I've been to a few cure, gig, cure gigs over the last few years. Well, I mean, you played at one. We played at one exactly. <laughs> we played at a couple actually, but yeah, um, like to go and hear them with the benefit of all the years hindsight and everything, you just appreciate it all over again. Yeah. Robert's very special, you know. His, his guitar playing is amazing, and his just sense of melody. Yeah, and um, all all the the very kind of upfront emotion in his songs as well the lyrics they're full of I love you and yeah. they're full of really simple yeah. uh, love song imagery yeah. which you don't you wouldn't associate with The Cure oh I mean but their best songs are full of that pictures of you yeah like yeah, yeah. what an intro and it is just absolutely beautiful we, sh- we should have maybe had that as the greatest intro <laughs> it could have could have <laughs> easily have been that mention. one yeah honourable mention to the pitch of you um, and so is, is this true the kind of the, the story that's the, the, the early Cure stuff that they they re- they said they'd only do it if you were on the bill is that is that true um, God I don't know I heard there was something that, where there was some what shows was it that I think Carter were on there as well and, oh they yeah I mean that's um, that was so we were early days for us. Yeah. And they were they sort of got us onto the bill for yeah, it was it was the Great British Weekend of Music or something That's in it. 91, yeah. So it was it was televised. Yeah. And that was their way of giving us a, a helping hand, which was amazing, you know, and yeah. and um you always look back at those moments and go, wow, you didn't have to do that. Yeah. You know, Robert's one of those guys that will help people. Mm. I saw, I was at the Cure show at Hyde Park, uh, yeah. was it last year or the year before? Year before, it was, maybe. yeah. Um, and got to see the, the, the Cure and, and yourselves. Yeah. And what a great day that was. That was the high point of the England football campaign. It was. <laughs> it, the match finished and then everyone descended onto Hyde Park. Yeah. Scorching day as well. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we kind of totally milked that one. We came on to World in Motion. 
Why not? <laughs> <laughs> and then, sh- then the next match after that, we went out. But, you know, that's what happens, isn't it? So how was school? Um, I think I had a pretty good school, you know, schooling. Um, I enjoyed it, I think. I sort of enjoyed art and made friends with Mark Gardner at art class. Um, so me and Mark have known each other since we were 12. Um, and just best mates and started playing guitar together. Um, was that encouraged at school? Yeah, I mean, like I say, I had lessons initially, but then they didn't really work, so I didn't really do it at school after that. I did it at home. So, um, But I did play guitar in... They like, had, like, school shows, and we were doing, being pulled in as a guitarist for one or two of those. Yeah. Yeah. What did you want to be when you was at school? A uh, guitarist in a rock band. Good answer. I used to used to draw <laughs> record sleeves as a, as a little kid, which my really? mum still kept, yeah. You've um, still got them? Yeah. Yeah, I used to sit and draw them all day, you know, and band names and... You know, yeah. Wonderful. I was a one-track, one-track mind. For track four, Andy, yeah. the first song you remember buying from a record shop? Yeah, um, it's a cool one actually. Um, Start by the Jam. Yeah. And it's got Liza Radley on the B side, and that was as a little kid who was into Revolver already. Yeah, of course. Um, it was like wow, it's almost like sampling. I mean, that that riff yeah. is just Taxman, which is um, never struck me as wrong. It was just like. I guess it was one of those things, talent borrows, genius steals, isn't it? Yeah. Um, just took it and run with it. Yeah. Um, yeah, the jam were uh, um, amazingly, um, they were so big at that point. And I remember seeing on the news when, I don't know if you remember the interview when he announced they were breaking up after a run of number one singles and he was just being interviewed outside by someone um, and it just felt so like important that the jam were on the news, you know, bad circumstances for the band breaking up. But anyway, um, they were just so big. Yeah. They were so big for kids my age. Um, and Start's one of their best tracks. I, I just think... The guitar solo on it is screamingly yeah. cool. Yeah, There was just a, a sense of urgency about the jam, I think. And yeah. it just... I just think it just... Yeah, everything he'd done just... As, as, as someone that you know, grew up in a working class area, everything that Paul Weller was singing about in the jam was like, yep, I get that, I get that, I get that. Mm. And uh, yeah, um, incredible. Hold up, what was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. 
If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Were record shops a big thing for you growing up? Well, um... In Headington, which is the suburb of Oxford I grew up in, um, you had John Menzies, um, and it had shout out to John Menzies. <laughs> shout out to John Menzies, yeah. Um, so they were in Headington, and that was where I got that single from. Yeah. And they just had a little box of, of singles, seven-inch shingle, singles uh, by the counter, and I bought other things from there, like Blondie, Gary Newman, uh, Queen, um, Save Me, which was one of the first ones I bought. Yeah. Um, the Gary Newman one was called Bombers. It wasn't very good, but it yeah. was like, you know, cheap. So I bought, it was like, yeah. there were cheap singles. They were cheap. Um, and then if you went into a town, in Oxford town centre, there was a lot of record shops. So as a teenager, I'd get the bus into town and then, yeah, you'd, you'd have like lots of choice. Our Price, HMV, um, one called Russell Acott, which is like a music store that upstairs had vinyl. Yeah. And you could order anything from there. And they had the booths as well. Right, of course. Booths. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that was cool. And so, even moving forwards, I see that um, only maybe six, seven months ago um, when you were out doing stuff with Ride again, mm -hmm. you were doing in-stores at Resonant in Brighton. Am yeah. I right there? Yeah. Yeah. And like, so is it important for you now to still kind of work with the independents? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of, um, when you're a band that does does well on vinyl then it really makes sense to work with independent record stores and you know we'll do install we'll do a run of in-stores when we release a record and it helps them and it helps us too you know yeah um there's some great stores out there and i always like looking through them um you, if, if we're doing an in-store i'll make sure i get there a couple hours early and just yeah. you know buy a load of stuff because you still you still dj much um i'd say i'm an intermittent dj i'll do it now and again yeah yeah Enjoy it? Yeah, I do. Hello. I've interrupted the podcast again, haven't I? Sorry, it won't take a sec. All I want to say is, the songs that we're talking about in this podcast, if we can't play them, it's just because of the regulations regarding playing licensed music and such. So if you want to hear the songs, just go over to Spotify and search off the beat and track podcast and you can listen to all the songs because i've put playlists up for each of these if you can't find it on there i'll send links on all the social media accompanying each episode so you've just got to press that one button and you can go through and you can enjoy all the songs that our guest picks anyway i'll shut up get back to the podcast see you on the other side um okay well i want to just pick back up on where, where we got to in regards to Sort of ride had been signed mm -hmm. um, and did you relocate to London at this point? No, I never lived in London till, till about 10 years ago. Okay. So I was living in Oxford and living at, I mean, I, I'd moved out. So we, we uh, formed in Banbury, which is North Oxfordshire mm -hmm. at art school. So um, did like two and a half terms there and then moved back home with my parents because we were touring so much. So um and we were already playing gigs yeah. enough that it was like, uh, it's, I don't want to go and rent a place. Yeah. Um, so I was back at my folks' house for another year or two and then um, ended up getting a 
place. Yeah. When the royalties from nowhere came in, we all bought houses in wow. Oxford. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good day, isn't it? That was a pretty good day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So what was just? I mean, I don't know if it's finished now, but I believe there is a a film coming out about creation and mm-hmm. and, uh, and and Alan. Um, what was that like being in them creation offices in uh, in the sort of early to mid nineties? Right. So I'd go down to the creation office and I'd just be. I mean, I was still pretty much still a child. I was yeah. just 18, <clears throat> 18, 19, and I was quite... I wasn't like a, a mature 19-year-old. I was yeah. just, a, just a scrawny little kid. Um, I'm turning up, and, and it's all going off in there, and it's um, <laughs> a bit like, whoa, this is, this is crazy. But, I, but at the same time, it wasn't shocking, because it was like, this is what I thought rock and roll would be like. Yeah. Um, at the time that we signed, like I said before, Primal Scream were the, the main concern of, you know, they were like Alan's mates. It was the, the Glasgow Massive was in mm. London and it was like, they, they were the, the centre of the whole thing. Mm. Everything spun off them. Um, so it was Primal Scream's world and we just lived in it. Yeah. Um, and Alan, I mean, that's quite a crazy world to live in, isn't it? <laughs> Especially at that point. It's, it's all right to visit. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't have lived there. Um, but yeah, I mean, they were great fun to be around for sure. Um, and me and Bob and, you know, the whole lot of them, we became, you know, good friends. Yeah. Um, and I've stayed, stayed that way over the years, you know, it's been a lot of years now, mm. but, um, it's nice to see Bob once in a while when I run into him. Um, yeah. and he's still the same person that he always was. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's move forward to, um. To, to to I guess the the sort of you know, the, the late teens and uh, and and the kind of golden era of, of, of clubbing, the song that soundtracked your years in Clubland, Andy. Right. Well, I've chosen a tune that I remember hearing <clears throat> being played, and then when I bought it, which is Chemical Brothers, "If You Cling to Me, I'll Cling to You." So this is this is a memory from the early nineties, mm-hmm. from the Heavenly Social, which I already mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, so. We were sort of hanging around with a lot of our social group at the Curation Records, like members of St. Etienne, like, um, members of St. Etienne, Primal Scream, I don't know, just the, just the people that were around at the time um, would all be going to this night. And it was a mate of mine called Paul Kelly, who used to do the door at the social, who said, oh, you guys should come down to this, this place. It's fairly close to Oxford. You could get, you know, get down there on the bus and come back on the night bus because there was a really good service going between Oxford and London yeah. called the Oxford Tube. So you could get it any time of day or night. Um, so you'd come down to London in the afternoon, um, go to the, um, the Albany, Great Portland Street, and you'd sit around drinking pints. Um, and then if you felt like going down to the, the club bit, that was in the basement, you yeah. could just hear some amazing music and dance and get sweaty. Um, and I already mentioned Weatherall was DJing. Yeah. <clears throat> a lot there and so were, the, were Tom and Ed um, and so off the back of hearing them DJ and I went and bought this 12 inch Yeah. Um, and yeah it's just a real forward thinking hip hop influenced yeah. dance record what did you want from, from clubbing? Um, well I liked being around the volume and I enjoyed the music um, 
I wasn't thinking in terms of using using that sound in my own music. It was set, a very separate thing for me at the time. Um, so, but it was a similar kind of release when, because when Ride started, um, Rave was big, mm-hmm. and people in the press sort of painted Ride or the, the shoegaze bands as some sort of like opposite to it. I wouldn't say it was opposite. I'd say it was more like a companion to it because mm. it was still. Um, there's a relationship there between the sort of thing we were doing and the sort of the sort of feeling you get at a ride gig and the feeling you might get at a euphoric club night. Completely. Um, Completely. I saw a parallel there for sure. Um, so it was all part of the same thing, really. Yeah. As, as somebody that was at those gigs and at raves as well, I totally get what you're saying there. Yeah. Totally yeah. get it. Um, okay. So... As we sort of move throughout the nineties the a bit when Ride comes um to a, a hiatus, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um But it we, we we broke up acrimoniously. Yeah. In ninety five, ninety six sort of period. Mm. So it only becomes a hiatus in hindsight yeah. when we yeah. got back together again. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You all fell out, right? <laughs> yeah. Um how was that for you to then for something that had been part of your life for so long? Yeah. Was you confident that you'd come back with something that was that was going to be good? And you know, did you take time out? Because it felt to me, thinking back now, it all seemed to happen quite quickly. Yeah, yeah. I I was knocked for six by it when it happened because it came out of the blue, and um, I kind of went home in shock and um, sort of thought. Oh. My my reaction was, it's a weird reaction, this, but I'd never learned to drive, and I was like. I better get. I better start getting driving lessons because I'm going to be a taxi driver in about six months. You know what I mean? I was like, right. that was. I think I was in panic mode, like it's all over, sort of thing. I'm all washed up at age 25. Right. Um, so I wasn't really seeing the big picture, but that in itself is a picture of where all our heads were at during the ride years. We were just kind of kids, really, yeah. very giddy, running around, like, in a, in this sort of little mini drama that was that could have all been kind of sorted out if we would have I don't know just taken a break or but I think maybe said, talked about it or something but you said you were, you know you were so young yeah and thrown into that industry hindsight again is a is a, is a marvelous thing isn't it but it, you know it must have been you know a what, very what? difficult thing for young men to to be able to function within yeah i mean what i can't get my head around sometimes is is the quality of the music we managed to do in those few years, you know, especially the first two albums that Ride did, Nowhere and Going Blank Again. Um, and I think about how young we were, it is pretty, you know, I'm pretty proud of it. Should be. Mm, thanks. Really should thanks. be. But yeah, so I was pretty lost after Ride finished. And um, it soon became, right, I've got to do something. I've got to get back on it. I've got to try and, you know, I've got to try and make something happen here. Um, so I started writing songs and initially wanted to do my own record or I thought oh, I should do my own record mm-hmm. so I was making demos for that and um, I think I don't know what happened next but we I think I played him to Alan and he was like we need to put a band around you like that's the, that should be what we do with this so there was never any question that you wasn't going to remain on creation it was no not in my head yeah brilliant. Um, yeah I just kind of I just didn't really think of any other option. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I suppose there must have been a conversation there with Alan, but I don't think it was in, in doubt from his side either. I mean, it was just sort of, what's the next step going to be? Yeah. 
any sort of um yeah I it's weird isn't it I can't remember um how it came about but we decided to go down a band route with it and um started auditioning singers and stuff and put a band together around it which is quite weird to to put together a band in that way but um it worked pretty well yeah we did two albums as hurricane number one mm -hmm. do you look back fondly on them years now yeah i do yeah i think it was um it was kind of a rebound thing from ride so everything about ride i was like well you've got to do the opposite you know mm. um it was like finding out a lot more how i suppose the music business normally works mm. because ride was a little bubble yeah um and we didn't because it was our first thing we didn't realize how different it was to nothing to compare it to a lot of most yeah. of what goes on you know um we talked about it with the music with the intros and the, you know the, the long sections of music um and the way we, we put songs together that applies to every part of being in a band yeah. we were just we just did it our way and we didn't know that was any different to anybody else until we stuck till it finished sure so after that i was kind of plugged into um, I felt like I wanted to just plug into everything that was that was just kind of cookie cutter about being in a band. I wanted that. Um, and Hurricane kind of was a reflection of that, I guess. Yeah. And it kind of was good for a while, and then it all started to just run dry a little bit after a couple of albums in. Um, I ended up getting a pretty big writer's block and um, ended up moving to Sweden for a while. I guess if you get writer's block there's worse places to go than Sweden isn't there yeah I mean it just felt like um, the, a logical move at the time um, I was married at that time to a Swedish lady mm -hmm. and we just had a kid so um, it felt like the right move and yeah I mean I ended up being there for quite a few years um, through the next you know bit of my life I was there and never ended up living in London until 06, 07 when, oh, okay. when that all finished yeah okay well Let's let's go back to Oxford briefly, and uh, for track six, Andy, a favourite song from an artist from your home county. Oh yeah, so I mean, when Ride started, there was no one from Oxford apart from this band called Mr Big, who I've still not heard. But there was some kind of seventies rock band. Mm -hmm. um, Are they from Oxford? I did not know that. Have you heard them? <laughs> yeah, they had one song in the early nineties. I remember. Yeah, like like a hit. Mm. I can't even think what it was called, but it was kind of acoustic-y kind of bad cock rock. Like yeah, that. right. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Um, well, I probably won't make an effort to hear it then. Yeah. But yeah, um, over, the, over the following years, uh, you know, while Ride was going, there was Radiohead, obviously, and Supergrass started off. So I've chosen a Supergrass track, mm -hmm. basically because you wanted a track from my home county, and this song mentions a place that I know and love in Oxford, which is Shot Over Hill. Okay. Um, that's the name of the song, and it's a place in Headington. Um, so it's it's like a a big, um, I guess you call it just a green space, mm. big park, um, very hilly, forested, and um, quite sprawling, which you can go up to the top of the hill, look down on the whole of Oxford and see the big power stations, and you've got this atmospheric view of Oxford, um, but not the scenic... University Oxford, more like a depressing yeah. kind of suburban Oxford you're looking down on. Yeah. Um, and you, it's a good place to go and have a think or a smoke or mm. whatever else, a picnic. Yeah. Um, it's a good place where I'd now bring the kids to go walking and yeah. when I'm with my parents, you know, because they still live in mm. Headington. 
Um, so yeah, Chateau for Hill is a place that I remember from, from my childhood and a place I still go to. And Supergrass wrote a brilliant song about it, yeah. which kind of says to me that they had the same feelings about it as me. Yeah. Another Oxford band that's got back together and uh, are yeah, back on the road. Yeah, recently I've just announced it, yeah. Mm. So I can't wait to see them play. Yeah, what what a cracking band. Yeah. Um, okay, so before we get on to the last track, I just want to... Um, talk about the next sort of chapter yeah. uh, within the sort of Andy Bell story, which was, you you join Oasis, yeah. which is, I mean, that's that's pretty fucking crazy, isn't it? It is. It that, is. Was that a phone call? Was that a, a meeting? How do these things happen? Um, well, because being on Creation, I'd, um, I'd been um, in their orbit, or in the same orbit mm. with... Um, Nolan and Liam for a few years before this all happened. So they got signed and I saw them pretty early on and absolutely loved them. Um, Alan was really, you know, singing their praises and he was playing me demo tapes all the time. So I was hearing all the demos coming in and just, it just felt like the band that it, Creation had been waiting for all yeah. these years. It was all a big, the build up to this. Because I think Alan McGee always wanted to have a really, really big band but just on his terms. Yeah. He wasn't about to compromise to get it, but when the right band came along, it was going to yeah. be this big thing that he just wanted. He was an ambitious guy. Yeah. Um, and so it, it, it happened, like a fairy story. It kept, they came along, the, the right band at the right time with, yeah. the, with incredible songs, incredible front man, um, massive attitude, and the whole package, yeah. you know? So we... Um, the rest of the bands who had been on creation already just, just kind of like saw this happen and just like, wow, you know, watched it um, arrive like a, yeah. like a juggernaut. It really know? did though, didn't yeah. it? Yeah. And it took over, took over the country really that it was just, and I was one of those that was taken out. I went to see him. I'd say I went to see him 20 times before yeah. um, any of the playing with him happened. You yeah. know, I was just a huge fan. Yeah. So, I think they knew this, and there was another fella in the same boat, which is Gem Archer, mm -hmm. who um, was also signed to Creation, mm. also a massive Oasis fan. So if you fast forward to this point in time where they got to where they needed two members, um, I think for whatever reason they wanted to keep this whole thing in-house, sort of right. within the Creation family, because it was quite a close-knit group mm. of bands and people, um, and that's probably the reason why me and Gem got lucky. Yeah. Andy Bell, the guitarist, though, mm -hmm. he's, becomes Andy Bell, the bass player. Yeah. So how was that? I enjoyed that. I mean... Um, was, was you an accomplished bass player? By no, you? no, I didn't know the first thing about bass playing. <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> great, though. <laughs> Fair play to him. Turned up to audition and uh, had to borrow a bass. Seriously? Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. And borrowed a bass off them and, and um, was... Yeah, picked it up and was sort of playing with my fingers. I'd, I'd sort of tried out on on a guitar, like figuring out what the the bass line was going to be. Hope probably, you know, it was yeah. close enough to, you know, get the feel of it. Um, but then, um, no, I was like, well, normally Griggs used to play with a pick, so do you want to try with a pick? So I did that, and it felt more like Sid Vicious. Yeah, um, it felt more right for the for the things. And then I started to get my head round. Right, I can do this. Yeah, um, and then. When this this was around, I'd say like towards the end of the year, and I had I had Christmas to prepare, 
he might have done. I can't remember. Again, my memory's gone, but he might have done a few gigs, just very short ones. Um, in I, I think it was in America. Yeah, we did America, and there was a, a little run of shows where we did five songs, and those five I'd sort of got my head around the, the basic parts of them. Then went back to the UK and had like or Sweden where I was living and had Christmas to get my head around it all before we started touring properly, and. I absolutely absorbed it. Ten hours a day bass playing or something. So what's like, that? Headphones on? Just yeah, yeah. I had a little a little chart that I made where I had all the songs, a little boxes to tick. Did I get it right? Did I play it all right? And I'd, I'd sort of um, uh, just basically like lived and breathed these bass parts for a good month, and then came in with it all down pat. Confident. Yeah. How was? How was sort of walking out on stage you've obviously you know with ride you played huge gigs and festivals and such was it did you did it feel daunting to then step back out after a few years with you know arguably the the, the biggest band in the country yeah um there was an adjustment there like um going out on stage to play fest um sorry stadium shows with oasis which is one of the first things that i did um was incredibly terrifying just before you go on stage the first one yeah we, we came to that little bit where you wait before you go onto the stage and you could just hear that roar and it's like wow it's like the world cup final um but then after that couple of minutes is you know you're, you're on stage then once you get on stage and and pick up your instrument and the song starts at heart oasis is the same as any other band um it's it's four or five people you know it's in Oasis's case, it's five people. In Ride, it was four. But in as soon as you start playing, you're just in a headspace with those bandmates, and it's all about the music then. And you just kind of you're in that little moment together. Yeah. Wh- whether the crowd is ten people or ten thousand people yeah. or a hundred thousand people. Yeah. Um, well, we don't need to go into. You know the, the the breakup of Oasis is quite well documented, and and then you you then become part of BDI with Liam, um, and then whilst this was going on, when when did it sort of start to you know happen that Ride was going to get back together? Um, it happened during a kind of break in in, in proceedings um, that we got offered a few gigs, and we decided to do them. Was, was she friends already by then? Or was, she, was, she, was you all kind of still in touch? Or As far as Ride was concerned, um, we had kind of forgotten our differences a, a few months or a year or two after the breakup. Okay. <clears throat> so um, I'd sort of see the guys now and again, run into them here and there, and just be cool. It was, it was kind of cool. Once the band had broken up, once Ride had broken up, um, the fact that it was done meant that all the tension was gone. So I'd see Mark or Steve or Loz and, and and then we'd... It was like just a friendly old mates kind of yeah. chat, you know? So, um, and then at some point during the, those years, um, like the Oasis kind of period or whatever, um, that was when I think Ride's music started to strike a bit more of a chord again with people. So, like, for example, in America, you'd sort of get people mentioning the name Ride to you um, if, they, if they're um, 
getting their Oasis record signed, they'd also say, oh, yeah, oh, Ride, Ride are pretty good, man, you know. Um, so that scene of music had been pretty much forgotten um, for a few years, but it was starting to come back. And I credit America with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it just started off as a few gigs, and then after a while it just kind of snowballed. And um, by the, by the, before you know it, we were doing a whole tour, a whole reunion mm-hmm. tour. I think what you just said there about America kind mm. of they really embraced shoegaze didn't they and, and, and lots of the stuff that come from that there was there was something that I, I don't know if you ever heard that track but there was a, a track by the Deftones called Minerva and and that come out maybe 10 years ago and and then I heard it and I just thought this, this sounds like Ride right like do you know the track no I don't it's just this huge wall of of guitars and I was like and it's predominantly a metal band historically right. yeah and I was like so I just looked into it and they were just talking about ride and I was thinking wow and it's and and, and again it just seemed that like that kind of shoegaze thing might have kind of I want to say disappeared from from sort of popular culture in the UK at that point but in America it was still being talked about a lot and I think, you know, it woke up the UK that there were mm. some fucking incredible bands making some amazing music. Yeah. I mean, it's um, <laughs> it's a state of mind, really. It's, yeah. a, it's a style. It's become like a, just a style of playing or, or something. It's become a few cool musical, um, tr- I would say, tricks or something. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. like um, things you can try in the studio. Yeah. Like, try turning the guitars up really loud. <laughs> so are you, are you cool with the word shoegaze? Yeah, I've become cool with it. Um, it's it's fine. I mean, it's it used to be used as an insult in the very early days. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it got coined as a term to um, just, you know, take the piss out of you staring at your shoes. Mm. Well, but really, you're staring at your pedal board. Yeah. You know? Um, none of us had much of the, what you might call charisma on stage. We are pretty, pretty still. But I mean, actually, you know, we weren't that still. Yeah. But the... The um, perception was that we were just standing there, yeah. looking down at our pedals yeah. behind our big fringes, which is kind of fair enough in a yeah. way. You wasn't that static on stage. I saw you. I thought we were bit. like the Who. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, Los Colbert. He's a very animated drummer, and he still is. Yeah. Last track, a song that many may not know, that you want them to hear. I've just chosen a track um, that is on probably my favourite album of last year, which is Designer by Aldous Harding. And people do know who she is, and people probably know this track even, but um, I wanted to pick something that I liked that maybe, if you haven't heard it, it's worth checking out. The song is called Fixture Pix- Picture. Fixture Picture. Oh, well, I'll put it on the, on the playlist, but like, what, what can people expect from it? It's um, fairly laid back. It's... Um, Got, it's got a lovely melody, nice chords and a good good lyric. What more do you want from a record? <laughs> Simple <laughs> as that, really. What's coming up, Andy? Um, well, we have just finished a ride tour. Um, we have a few festival dates in the diary, but nothing um, for a month or two. So right now I'm going back into um, remix mode. Um, oh, really? I've, I do remixes and also music under the name Glock, G-L-O-K. So... Um, there's some, there's some remixes to be to be done. Wonderful. Andy, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. There you go. So 
every time you hear somebody go, yeah, Andy Bell, yeah, he's a really nice guy. They're not lying. He's, um, he was an absolute gentleman. And I was so, so thrilled to be sitting opposite somebody whose music has meant so much to me um, for, for so many years now. And it's really nice when you meet people that you really admire and, and they're nice people. And um, yeah, he was a, an absolute delight. Um, thanks once more to uh, Andy for giving up his time to come and do this. Thanks again to Kate Thornton for, for helping put this together. Uh, and thanks most of all to you lot for listening. Um, if you like it, please like, love, share, retweet. Um, and as mentioned at the beginning, go and have a look in the back catalogue for um, another stack of great episodes. Thanks again. I'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I've butted in yet again. I just want to quickly tell you about this magazine. It's called Pod Bible. Now, Pod Bible is the new essential guide to podcasts. It's put together alongside Spotify and Acast, and it's a one-stop shop to tell you all about the podcasts you maybe know about, but definitely about a load of the podcasts that you probably don't know about that we think you should know about. I mean, in the first edition, there's... Interviews with Adam Buxton, interviews with Craig Parkinson, um, there's features on Jade Adams, and there's just an abundance of information about so many exciting podcasts that are out there. Also, Spotify have given us these amazing little codes, so if you do get a print copy, you can just turn on your Spotify on your phone, scan the little code, and it just automatically opens up the podcast on your listening device. How good's that? If you haven't managed to get a print copy, then just go over to www.podbiblemag.com and read it online because the digital version is all over there and it's all free. So every other month there'll be a new edition out. So go and have a look and support us on the social medias as well. Podbiblemag.com It's off the beat and track podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. Me stew with him. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping 
and 365-day returns.